In Tennessee, the Republican-controlled statehouse votes to oust two Democrats. Unbelievable and unconscionable that they would go so far as to expel us for saying that we need to do something about gun violence. We'll hear from one of them about what happens next for Saturday, April 8th. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Amid former President Trump's historic indictment, conspiracy theorists are still trusting the plan. I saw many QAnon followers compare Trump to a bullfighter who is trying to provoke the bull of the, the deep state to attacking him. And Tiny Beautiful Things, a new series based on Cheryl Strayed's columns. I really did try to, you know, contemplate that question. What would I tell my younger self? And one of the most important things I would tell her is about gratitude. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is condemning the move by a federal judge in Texas to invalidate the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone more than two decades after it first came into use. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. In a statement, Biden criticized the court for substituting its own judgment over the FDA, the expert agency that approves drugs in the United States. He wrote, and I quote here, if this ruling were to stand, then there will be virtually no prescription approved by the FDA that would be safe from these kinds of political ideological attacks. Biden also warned that this decision is a step toward the national ban on abortion Republican lawmakers have wanted. He cautioned that if it holds, it could have far-reaching implications beyond the borders of Texas. It could prevent women all across the country from accessing the pills, regardless of whether abortion is legal in their state. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Justice Department says it's investigating how secret military documents on the war in Ukraine made their way onto multiple social media sites. NPR's Greg Myrie has more. Dozens of classified U.S. documents on the Ukraine war have cropped up in the past few days on sites that include Twitter, Telegram, and 4chan. Many appear part of a slide display of maps and charts that are produced daily for Pentagon leaders. This raises a host of questions about how widespread the breach may be and how much damage it could cause. There's no word on who's responsible for leaking or stealing the documents. The papers do not reveal Ukrainian battle plans for a widely expected offensive this spring. However, they do provide details on combat brigades that Ukraine is assembling and when they should be ready to fight. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Dozens of Chinese fighter jets briefly crossed the Taiwan Strait today as China began drills around Taiwan. As NPR's Owen Sao reports, this is how China shows anger at Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen's meeting with the U.S. House of Representatives. The three-day drills were announced today after Tsai returned from the United States after meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in Los Angeles Wednesday. The drills have been widely expected, as China also staged war games around Taiwan last August. After the then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei. China views the South Road Island as its own territory and has never renounced the use of force to bring it under its control. Taiwan's government strongly objects to China's claims. Its defense ministry said on Saturday morning that China was using Tsai's U.S. visit, quote, as an excuse to carry out military exercises, which has seriously damaged regional peace, stability, and security. Owen Tao, NPR News, Beijing. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Abortion is still legal in Massachusetts, but the ruling of a federal judge in Texas, barring a commonly used drug in medical abortions, could impact access in this state. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports Governor Healy is promising to keep mifepristone available in Massachusetts. So what's happening this weekend is the governor's talking to abortion rights groups about a plan to maintain access to mifepristone, which is also known as RU486. Healy says she'll outline that plan on Monday. The Biden administration is challenging the Texas decision, and the issue may have to be settled by the Supreme Court. Local anti-abortion rights groups hope the Texas ruling will limit access to abortion in Massachusetts. In western Massachusetts, the head of the East Hampton School Committee says the board's decision to rescind a job offer to a candidate for superintendent went beyond the candidate's use of the term ladies during negotiations. But Vito Perone insists that's not what he was told when he learned he would not be hired. Alden Bourne reports. In a written statement, Board Chair Cynthia Kwasinski says it's true she felt insulted when Perone addressed her and an executive assistant as ladies in an email. But she says the committee also took issue with time off and salary requests he made. Perone says those other concerns weren't mentioned when he met with the committee. They said that the reason was because I called them ladies, which is a microaggression. I attempted to apologize for offending anyone, and they didn't think that that was relevant based on the fact that they had already voted. As for Perone's contract demands, he says he thought they would be the beginning of a negotiation that never happened. The East Hampton School Committee is scheduled to meet Monday night to discuss the path forward. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. In sports, the Red Sox are in Detroit, and they lead the Tigers now 8 to nothing in the third inning. The Bruins host New Jersey tonight at the TD Garden, face-off at 8 p.m. Clear and cold overnight, overnight 30s degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. We begin tonight's program in Tennessee, where this week the state's Republican-led House of Representatives voted to expel two Democrats, stripping them of their membership in the state's legislature. The expulsion was a response to protest the two lawmakers held in the well of the House floor, that's the speaking area up at the front, along with a third Democrat. They were calling for gun safety laws in the wake of a mass shooting in a Nashville school that left three children and three adults dead. We're joined now by one of the people who was expelled, former Tennessee State Representative Justin J. Pearson. He's a Democrat from Memphis. Welcome, Representative Pearson. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. To start off with, you met with Vice President Harris yesterday. You Mm -hmm. spoke on the phone with President Biden. What did they tell you? I think the president and the vice president showed solidarity with the families who were mourning and who were grieving uh, the shooting at Covenant, and also spoken solidarity with the Tennessee Three, myself, Representative Johnson, Representative Jones. Uh, They were both very 
supportive and encouraging to us to not give up on this movement not give up on democracy yeah because that's what's at stake here and the erosion of our democracy by the republican-led tennessee state house and before we get to some of this these broader questions i i do want to ask specifically about what comes next because the shelby county commission mm -hmm. will meet soon to make an interim appointment to this empty seat do you mm -hmm. want them to appoint you Yes, I do want to serve District 86. Do you think the lawmakers who voted to expel you would allow you to return? I don't know what they're going to do. It is unbelievable and unconscionable that they would go so far as to expel us mm -hmm. for saying that we need to do something about gun violence, for saying that we need to listen to the people's voice and not the NRAs. It's unbelievable that they would rather throw the Constitution away than actually hear opinions that are different from their own at a time when we are mourning and grieving the loss of six people who were killed at the Covenant School. There's certainly been a lot of attention on the fact that you and your fellow blackmail colleague, former Representative Justin Jones, were expelled but your white colleague, Democratic Representative Gloria Johnson, was not. And we talked to one of your former colleagues yesterday, and that's uh, Republican Jody Barrett, who voted to expel Ewan Jones, but did not vote to expel Johnson. And my colleague, Mary Louise Kelly, asked him if race was a factor. Here's what he had to say. It had absolutely nothing to do with race. But you did not vote to expel, as you say, Representative Johnson. Why not? What was the difference? Well, I'm an attorney, and Ms. Johnson was the only representative that showed up with legal counsel and their legal counsel made an opening statement pointing out deficiencies in the resolution that had been filed that we were voting on. And once those deficiencies were pointed out, in my view as an attorney, then it was incumbent upon the debate to present evidence to correct that and to establish clearly what it was that Ms. Johnson did to rise to the level of expulsion. I just don't think that we established that during the debate. What's your response to that? Mm -hmm. Look, we, we all know the differences between Representative Jones, myself, and Representative Johnson. And we listened to the way that the Tennessee State Republican House majority spoke to us during our persecution during this process. What we were expelled for was because we decided that it was time for the state of Tennessee Republicans to stop listening to the NRA and start listening to the thousands of children and teens and grandmothers and, and, and siblings who are mourning because of the effects of gun violence. Yeah. We spoke up against their status quo, which says, be silent, even when people are dying, even when people are asking for you to do something, even when people want to see change. And the speaker and the governor and everyone in the Republican Party said, you all saying that is too extreme for this house, despite the fact that thousands, millions of Tennesseans want to see change and they want to see it now. But just to just to follow up specifically, mm -hmm. you said we know the difference. Are you, are you do you think it entirely came out to the fact that the two of you are young black men and she is a white woman? No, I think we need to interrogate why this process was started in the first place. Mm -hmm. Why? did the Republican Party of the state of Tennessee decide that it was time to persecute people who were saying we need to end gun violence? You suddenly have a national platform. There is now a lot of attention and energy focused on not only what happened to you, but on the issue of gun laws. What specifically do you want to do next? Yes, I will continue to advocate for District 86, our people in Memphis, Millington, Shelby County, and the state of Tennessee to pass sensible gun legislation, red flag laws, gun safety laws, background checks are not things that are extreme 
They are things that most other people in the state, most people in the country even want to see happen. And there is an opportunity for us to make sure that the victims at Covenant School, the victims like my classmate Larry Thorne and so many others who are suffering from the effects of gun violence, that we help to create systems and policies and processes in our state that make this a safer place to be. And I'm going to continue to do that advocacy and convene people toward that work. I want to I want to end with a big picture question for you sure. because you you actually spoke to us earlier this year. Um, you're from Memphis, of course. Tyree Nichols was beaten by Memphis police and later died. And shortly after that, you spoke with my colleague Michelle Martin. And and in that conversation, you talked about how you had just lost a high school classmate to gun violence. Yeah. All of that happened. You're now dealing with the aftermath of another mass shooting in your state. Mm-hmm. You've now been expelled from the legislature and, and, and have this national attention thrust upon you. I mean, that's all a lot to process, especially for someone in their 20s. Yeah. Uh, this is a difficult time for a lot of people in our country who are tired of the proliferation of guns and who are tired of the gun violence that meets us every single day in our communities. And you're afraid that it is your classmate like Larry. You're afraid that it's your aunt. You're afraid that it's your mentor, like Dr. Yvonne Nelson, uh, my mentor who was killed last year by gun violence. And those worries too often come to our front doors and they meet us at funeral after funeral after funeral and we're tired. And to have the Republican Party in Tennessee say that because we exercised our First Amendment rights to speak for people who will never be able to speak and to listen to people who are exercising their First Amendment rights in the galleries who had come to protest and come to be heard, to say that we deserve expulsion for doing what this American democracy was built on, that is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is undemocratic. And that is our surest way to lose our democracy. That was former, and as we just heard, potentially future Tennessee State Representative Justin J. Pearson. Representative Pearson, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. We're going to keep fighting. Last night, a federal judge in Texas suspended the Food and Drug Administration's approval of a widely used abortion pill. That FDA approval came more than 20 years ago for a pill called Mifepristone, one of two pills used in most medication abortions. In another ruling issued last night, another federal judge, this one in Washington state, issued a conflicting order demanding that the FDA keep the abortion pill on the market. To help sort some of this out, we have turned to NPR's pharmaceuticals correspondent, Sydney Lupkin. Sydney, thanks for joining us. Hi, Scott. So there's a lot to sort through. The first thing I'm wondering is, has a judge ever told the FDA before to take a drug's approval away? You know, this is really unprecedented. So in general, the courts are supposed to defer to the expertise of the agencies. So you've got the FDA chock full of scientists and doctors, and then you've got a judge without a medical or scientific background. So the FDA has been sued before, but usually if it loses, the judge just says, you know, hey, redo this. You know, nothing like what just happened. So in this case, the Texas judge sided with the anti-abortion group and said the FDA never should have approved Mifeprestone 23 years ago. And by the way, the judge's ruling never includes the word fetus. The judge in Texas only uses the words like unborn child or unborn human. Allison Whalen, a professor at Georgia State University College of Law, talked to me about that. And here's how she reacted to the judge's ruling. I had a very similar, if not even more visceral reactions to it than when I even read Dobbs, just simply because of the language used. It is rife with just study after study that have been discredited. 
So Dobbs is, of course, the ruling last summer that overturned Roe v. Wade after it kept abortion legal for almost 50 years. Okay, so what happens now? So the Texas ruling says that in seven days, the FDA will need to suspend its approval of mifepristone. So at least for the next week, it's still on the market, it's still approved, should still be available. But the Biden administration has appealed and will seek a stay to keep it on the market while this all plays out. Meanwhile, as you already said, another judge presiding over a separate case in Washington state ruled last night that the FDA can't change anything about its approval and needs to keep mifepristone on the market. So the conflicting opinions in two different circuits is pretty much a fast track to the Supreme Court. All right, so let's look ahead. Say the courts ultimately do decide that the FDA does have to suspend its approval of mifepristone. Is there anything the FDA can do? Well, yeah. So it's the FDA's job to take enforcement action against companies trying to peddle unapproved drug products. And in this case, the agency could choose not to. In other words, it could use what's called enforcement discretion and just not go after anyone making or selling mifepristone. Some say that would be a crazy move for the FDA because it sets up a big conflict between the courts and the agency. And others say it's not so different from like a police officers saying that they're not going to go after every driver who's speeding because, you know, they have limited resources. Well, that leads to the question that if this ruling sticks, what does that mean for the drug industry in general? So it could have a really chilling effect on both the FDA and the drug industry. So if the courts can just reverse an FDA approval despite its review of, you know, evidence that a product is safe and effective, then what other approvals might it reverse? The FDA doesn't have the resources to get sued a lot. That's time. That's taxpayer dollars. So it might think twice about approving drugs that might get politicized. Think medications for HIV, gender reaffirming care, maybe vaccines. And then backing up further, the drug industry industry might not want to do the time-consuming and expensive work of studying and seeking approval for these drugs because a single judge could wipe out that approval. That was NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Thank you, Sydney. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover a dynamic career with a master's in clinical mental health counseling. With individualized, experiential learning, you'll thrive. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. Clear and cold overnight, dropping into the 30s, sunny near 50 tomorrow. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Jewish Arts Collaborative, bringing Jewish culture to life for us all, in person and online. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden is condemning the move by a federal judge in Texas to invalidate the FDA's approval of the abortion pill mifepristone more than two decades after it first came into use. Biden says if this decision holds, it could have far-reaching implications. 
The Israeli military says three rockets were launched from Syria toward Israeli-occupied territory and that one of the rockets landed in open areas in the southern Golan Heights. No one was wounded. North Korea claims this week it conducted another test of a nuclear-capable underwater attack drone. North Korea has been testing various weapons in response to joint U.S.-South Korea military exercises in the region. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Two of the biggest elections of the year took place this past week. Both were big wins for progressives, and both had national implications. In Wisconsin, an unabashedly liberal judge named Janet Protasiewicz won a seat on the state Supreme Court, That's after she explicitly campaigned for abortion rights and against Republican gerrymandered maps. I have been very, very forthright that my personal value is that women have a right to choose. Meanwhile, in Chicago, a progressive named Brandon Johnson defeated a centrist Democrat to become the next city's mayor. What's it all mean going forward? NPR's Kelsey Snell has been following these races, and she joins me now. Hey, Kelsey. Hi there. So let's start with Wisconsin, with that win that gave liberals, Democrats, even though they, you know, it's technically a nonpartisan race, control over the state Supreme Court. What are the big takeaways? I want to start with the fact that Janet Protasiewicz won this race by 11 points. And this is in a state that is not known for having big margins, particularly in a year that, you know, there's not a lot else on the ballot. This isn't a presidential year. Now, this tells us that abortion was a huge motivator for Democrats. And this issue is really not losing any salience for voters. Democrats have been, you know, not as motivated in voting for judicial issues in the past. And this is actually a kind of a turn for them that if you talk to activists, they say they hope this is a start of a long term shift for the party where they start to focus more on these judicial races to address some of the issues that they care about the most. Now, returning to that point about it being nonpartisan, another thing that was different about this was that she did run on politics. Often we don't see that being part of a judicial race. It's supposed to be about the law and not about the politics. And, you know, this is another thing where we see a little bit of a shift and a possibility that this could be the way judicial races go from here. And on one hand, it was kind of jarring to see that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there are such key issues at stake. And it's so clear that this court would be deciding them that I guess it makes sense. It does. And, you know, voters largely view the courts as being more and more political. This is kind of a change that has been happening over a long period of time. So it isn't surprising in that sense. Okay, so let's let's look at Chicago. This was an interesting mayoral election. This was a runoff after a contentious initial first round of voting. 
What happened? Well, this is kind of a classic story of Democrats sorting out their internal differences. Uh, Brandon... Very quietly <laughs> and, you know, everyone getting along, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Chicago Democrats, that's always the theme. <laughs> well, the story here is Brandon Johnson, who is a black man in his 40s who was running a progressive message against Paul Vallis, who is a white man in his 60s who was running a campaign on law and order and business development. So you really see that split of different ways that Democrats can define themselves. And they really took different approaches on crime specifically. Vallis called for more police, and Johnson talked about a public safety approach and broader societal issues with a focus on education and health care and housing. Looking ahead to an almost certain re-election bid, We have seen President Joe Biden lean into the centrist aspects of his record, and we have particularly seen him try to take a more tough-on-crime approach than a lot of progressive Democrats like to see. Biden has clearly been trying to insulate himself from Republican attacks and Democrats being soft on crime. So do you have any thoughts on what these results mean for Joe Biden? Well, Joe Biden has also been trying to insulate himself against attacks from Republicans on a lot of fronts. Mm -hmm. He negotiated with more centrist Democrats like Joe Manchin, and he worked with Republicans on big things like infrastructure. So Biden does have this record of having kind of a more centrist approach to governing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of progressives say that they have effectively moved the base of the party to the left over time, and that, you know, when they run in a general election and as they move forward, those conversations will also move to the left. So if the party is split on some of those key issues, but at the same time looking at those Wisconsin results sees abortion, which is an issue that most Democratic voters generally agree on, they see that that is a winning issue that is winning a lot of moderate and independent voters. Is that what we can expect to see a focus on as a unifying and energizing message? Yeah. I As I talk to Democrats, I hear them talking about abortion and I hear them talking about common sense approaches to gun control. I think those are two messages that they see as winning opportunities. They also seem to really be focusing on the idea that they are the party of common sense in general and that Republicans are, and the term that they like to use, are the party of extreme magnitude. So tying some of these social issues where Democrats have an advantage in the polls to former President Trump and his liabilities and personal issues that also poll really poorly. That's NPR's Kelsey Snell. Kelsey, thanks for coming by. Always glad to be here. Former President Donald Trump is wearing his history-making criminal indictment, that's 34 counts of falsifying business records to be precise, as a badge of honor, proof of a corrupt deep state that's out to get him. And even before those charges, there was plenty of speculation that this indictment could add fuel to the conspiracy theories that have swarmed around Trump and that he has increasingly embraced. So how is that all going? For that, we talked to someone who knows a lot about QAnon. That's Travis View, a conspiracy theory researcher and co-host of the podcast QAnon Anonymous. Welcome, Travis. Scott, thank you so much for having me on. So before we get into the, the reaction, let's help refresh listeners about what exactly we're talking about and what your podcast does, which is give a glimpse into the QAnon subculture. This is a conspiracy theory that began, roughly speaking, with the idea that Donald Trump is battling a secret world of pedophiles who are embedded in the government and the media and the deep state and many other places. Is that, at this point in 2023, still a, a fair way to characterize what's going on there? Yeah, that that is fair. Yeah, it's basically, it's, it's both a conspiracy theory, but it's also, I think, fairly described as an extremist movement. It's based upon these 
these posts on uh, these image boards, 4chan, 8chan, and 8kun, which uh, QAnon followers believe are actually secret messages coming from Trump and his allies in military intelligence, which QAnon followers think that they can decode to defeat the uh, deep state and the worldwide cabal of pedophiles who supposedly control the world. And I'll just say for the first of many times I say this in this interview, that that is completely not true. Just to put it out there. Um, so I'm wondering, let, let, let's get to the heart of this. How has this world responded to to this indictment? Well, they are still trusting the plan. Research into uh, cognitive dissonance shows that when you know, a prophetic cult encounters you know, a false prophecy or an unrealized prophecy, they simply reinterpret past events and try and make sense of that. And the followers will usually wind up doubling down on their beliefs. So in in what we saw happen this week, the response has been, yes, of course, this is part of it, and it's good for Trump. Absolutely. I saw many QAnon followers compare Trump to a bullfighter who is trying to provoke the bull of the, the deep state to attacking him in order to wear out the deep state so that the deep state may eventually be defeated. So the QAnon followers are still very much trusting the plan. We keep talking about they. Who at this point are we talking about? Do you have a sense about how many people are deeply in this world posting, taking cues from these message boards? You know, it is notoriously difficult to gauge the actual support for uh, QAnon beliefs, partly because QAnon followers may not be totally honest with pollsters and partly because how you phrase the question gets wildly different results. I mean, polls by uh, YouGov, the polling firm, indicate that only about 3% of Americans are willing to self-identify as QAnon followers. However, uh, polls conducted by the uh, Public Religion Research Institute found that somewhere between 15 to 20 percent hold to some of the core concepts of QAnon. But even if you were to go at the low end, uh, that still would indicate that there are millions of Americans who believe in QAnon. On that note, were you surprised that there was not any widespread political violence and, and, and really not much of a, of a big showing of Trump supporters around the courthouse in Manhattan this week? Yeah, I mean, I was I was certainly grateful that that that's the case. I think it really depends upon, um, you know, how strongly uh, Trump directs his most devoted followers to act and to gather, because you know he certainly does uh, still have the grip of a cult leader over the uh, sort of the most devoted QAnon followers. Love what keeps QAnon followers more or less pacified is the belief that things are happening behind the scenes in order to fix the country. They're very difficult to tell. I mean, I mean, like I said, the research generally shows that nothing, no real world events could ever um, dissuade their faith. But um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's always very, very difficult to predict how uh, social movements like that will behave. Do you feel like this movement has peaked or is waning, or do you f find it to be growing in staying power and influence at this point? Um, You're taking a while to think about that answer. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a really tough question. I would say it's, it's pretty stagnant at the moment, but um, don't hold me to that. I generally don't like making predictions about the direction of QAnon. There are many times in the past where I thought that events suggested that QAnon was going to go away if it just never happened. But uh, I am I will discover exactly the direction QAnon goes with everyone else. And Q drops, we should just clarify for those not steeped in this language, is the, the official word from Q, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, the the strange, occasionally cryptic, sometimes straightforward messages that were posted on these image boards that QAnon followers believe are coming straight from the highest levels of military intelligence. Occasionally cryptic and sometimes straightforward. That's how I like to think of this radio program as well. <laughs> we're talking on Saturday. In the past five days since, since Trump appeared in court and pleaded not guilty, you have not seen a massive movement to, to suggest this could, could re-energize things, or, or is it still too early to make a conclusion like that? <laughs> I would say is is still too early to make a conclusion like that. I mean, uh, I you really do get the sense that a lot of the the broader right wing movement is kind of sick of QAnon in some ways. We we kind of saw that in the uh, recent um, lawsuit with that uh, Dominion filed against Fox News for defamation, in which we saw you know big names such as Tucker Carlson express disgust at Sidney Powell, a QAnon affiliated lawyer who spread a lot of conspiracy theories about election fraud. That's Travis View, co-host of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Thanks, Travis. Thank you. Air travel can be nerve-wracking. Just ask South African pilot Rudolf Erasmus. He was piloting a small private plane when he found a stowaway of the deadly and reptilian kind. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. Imagine your greatest fears. The ones that paralyze you. The ones that render you helpless. If the schlock horror movie Snakes on a Plane makes you nervous. Now imagine them all at once. Spare a thought for Rudolf Erasmus. I felt this little cold sensation um, underneath my, my shirt where my hip is situated. I don't really know how to say it correctly um, in English, but basically we have got your little love handles. A slithering stowaway. That's what the South African pilot discovered when he felt something cold brush up against his body on a flight to the South African town of Nelspreit this week. When he looked down, the pilot was surprised to see a highly venomous Cape Cobra under his seat. As I turned to my left and I looked down, I could see the head of the snake receding back underneath my seat. Um, at which point there was a moment of stunned silence, to be brutally honest. Erasmus decided to turn the plane around and head back to the closest airport with his four horrified passengers, plus the unwelcome guest. I then informed my passengers of what was going on but everybody remained calm. A Cape Cobra bite can kill someone in under an hour. Was he scared? The deadpan pilot said his first thoughts were for his passengers. I was more afraid of what the snake might do. Luckily, it didn't strike anyone. Otherwise, that would have changed or complicated the whole situation. The incident has drawn comparisons to cult 2006 film Snakes on a Plane, in which an FBI agent, played by actor Samuel L. Jackson, lets loose an expletive-laden tirade when he discovers the plane he's on is full of venomous snakes. Erasmus said he'd seen the movie some time ago. Um, Samuel L. Jackson's, uh, how you say it, that iconic scene in Snakes of a Plane of his famous saying, that is how I felt at some point. Erasmus has been praised by South African Civil Aviation Commissioner Poppy Causa who told local media the pilot was a hero and saved all lives on board. Since landing, however, the snake has not been found. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg.
You're listening to NPR News. The origin story of a shoe might not sound like dynamic movie material, but in Air, the shoe in question is the one that put Nike on the map. The movie has an all-star cast, including Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Viola Davis. And according to critic Bob Mondello, Air is designed to have audience walking on air. Beaverton, Oregon, headquarters of the country's third biggest maker of athletic shoes, where the mood is glum. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Nike has just gone public, and its shareholders are getting antsy. Founder Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck, wants to branch out from running shoes into basketball shoes. But to do that, the company needs a player endorsement deal, and Converse and Adidas have the edge, as a Nike executive points out. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star Shoe. That Converse question came from talent scout Sonny Vaccaro, a Nike true believer played by Matt Damon, who's arguing that they should blow their whole basketball budget on one player, a promising college junior from North Carolina named Michael Jordan. For a rookie who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah. As you can hear, even when they're paying his salary, Sonny doesn't suffer fools, nor does he follow rules. When Jordan's agent won't entertain Nike's offer, Sonny hits the road. Hey, where the hell are you? North Carolina. Damn it, Sonny, what happened to a phone call? I'm calling you now. I'm in the car. The rental car has a phone in it. it not me, the parents. It would have been unprofessional for me to just call them up. Right, so just tell you to show up at their front door. Look, if anybody back there asks where I am, just tell them I'm sick. You got it. Sick in the head. The thing is, Sonny's gambit pays off. Jordan's mom, played with authority to spare by a quietly commanding Viola Davis, agrees to listen to his pitch, and when he suggests some questions she might want to put to the competition, she turns that around. What should I ask you? Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son. I believe he's different. And I believe you might be the only person on earth who knows it. Alex Convery's script takes some liberties, but these are all real people, and the film's story is more or less the way it happened, heightened somewhat. I'm willing to bet my career on Michael Jordan. Oh, come on, man. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. You know how it turned out, but as with most things, the devil's in the details. Affleck keeps air airy by directing dialogue scenes as if they're passing drills, his players bouncing quips off each other. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. While he sometimes takes an easy layup himself. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. Air is effortlessly entertaining, but it wants to be about more than just the marketing triumph of an underdog shoe company. So while it concentrates on how the sports industrial complex rewards players rather than how it exploits them, it also gives Viola Davis... A shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. The last word on the intersection of corporate profits and race, and it nods in passing to a Nike executive's qualms about the company's use of overseas sweatshops. Side issues, but issues addressed, airily, on the way to a happy ending about the billions of dollars that have flowed to one of history's great athletes and the company that tagged along by championing him. I'm Bob Mandela.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm John Carpilio. Red Sox ahead of the Tigers, sixth inning, 8-2 to two the score. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Clear and cold overnight, 30, sunny, near 50 tomorrow, 51 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Moonbox Productions, The House of Ramon Iglesia, a play about an Americanized son's tormented efforts to break away from his immigrant parents, a break that can't be made until he accepts the ethnic heritage he has spent his life trying to suppress. Opening April 14th at the Mosesian Center for the Arts. Tickets at mosesianarts.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Pentagon is trying to determine how documents about the war in Ukraine turned up on at least two social media sites. The classified material included maps of Ukraine and descriptions of weapons. Pentagon officials say it appears the documents are authentic, but some details have been altered. President Biden says he's invited the three Tennessee lawmakers involved in a protest on the state House floor calling for stricter gun control measures to the White House. Two of them, both black men, were expelled from the body. And officials from golf's Masters Tournament says the prize money this year will be $18 million. That's an increase from $15 million last year. The winner gets $3,240,000. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Bobby McIlvain was just 26 years old when he died on September 11, 2001. He was at the World Trade Center by chance, helping a colleague at Merrill Lynch set up for a banking presentation. The Atlantic writer Jennifer Sr. knew Bobby well. Her parents let her read his journals. And then she wrote about him in what would become a Pulitzer Prize winning essay. And that essay was published along with others this week in a new book, On Grief, Love, Loss, and Memory. She told NPR's Rachel Martin how she felt compelled to investigate his life. He was an avid diarist. And he had a diary sitting on his desk on September 11th that his father gave to the woman that he was going to marry, that Bobby was going to marry. Her name is Jen. Mm -hmm. Her name was Jen, yes. And, you know, he was in this fugue state as he was cleaning out Bobby's room, and Jen was with him. And Jen took one look at that diary, saw that her name was all over it, and said, may I have this? And his father said, yes, yes, of course, take it. Maybe you'll find something in there that will be useful for the eulogy. He was trying to be kind. Mm -hmm. 
And Bobby's mother, when she found this out, was so upset and said, how can you give away the last thing our son ever wrote? It was, it's, it's a chance to have, to hear his voice one more time, to in a weird way be in conversation with him, to hear fresh conversation from him. This was a chance to hear their son who was a good writer and had a lively mind. And when she asked Jen, his fiance, for this diary, she never got it back. Jen wouldn't give it back. And I became obsessed with this thing, just as Helen did. Huh. I could not understand why, why would you not give this back to a mother? And I, I just became bound and determined to get this diary back. Over all these years, you had just had Bobby's mom, Helen, her version of this story. That is exactly right. It did not occur to me that there could be a perfectly humane, plausible, sympathetic, really profound, goose-pimpling explanation for why Jen may have wanted to hang on to this diary. What happened when you tracked Jen down and confronted her about this? I don't know if confront is the right word. Seems probably more aggressive than it actually was. She was extraordinarily gracious. I wrote her this very gingerly note. You know, I said to her, you know, that I, I really wanted to just ask her about how she was processing this trauma 20 years in. She wrote me back this incredibly nice note saying that she had a very fond memory of the two of us talking right after we had discovered that Bobby had died. I have no memory of this at all, hmm. which just shows how funny our memories are. I mean, to some degree, this book is about, the piece is about how flawed our memories are, particularly when it comes to trauma. But she couldn't have been more gracious and she was ready to share it. And she she had got, contemplated it. And she was, I think, in a funny way, grateful for the opportunity. She was grateful for the opportunity to, to talk with you, to sit and share memories. And in the end, what did you learn about her motivations for keeping the journal? Oh, but if I tell that, I give oh, away. Oh, we don't have to. Oh, no, we don't have to. I, 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 I always Oh, no, I love that you asked. Spoilers. No, I, I love I, that you asked. Well, here's, here's what I will say. Okay. The last page, you read it, and I meant it. I, I mean, the, the hair, every hair on the back of my neck was, you know, standing up. It was, it was when Helen finally saw it because Jen gave me permission to Xerox it. You know, Helen said, oh, my God, how could she not have held on to it? I mean, I would have had to have given her this diary if I'd known what was in it. I mean, this is a 26-year-old young man, right? I think Helen made the mistake of thinking that there was going to be a lot of material in there about her. Because in his previous diaries, of course, in the diaries of a teenager, many of the ones that she'd seen... He talks about his family, but he had just fallen in love. A lot of this diary was about Jen, and I'm not going to say all the various things that were in there. And some of them are also about grief, coincidentally. Mm -hmm. And so, what, so it made it doubly interesting because his diary wasn't just kind of this historical artifact, but kind of a crystal ball. It kind of had all of these pearls of wisdom about how to grieve. And no one could have predicted that. There's a subplot in this story about this marriage between yes. Helen and Bob Sr. Yes. And wow, 
the grace that she extends to him as he is working through a lot of questions about how his kid died, right? And and there's not information. They don't know what his last moments were like. And so Bob Sr. starts to fill the vacuum with a lot of conspiracy theories. How did Helen absorb all that? Grace is such a perfect word, and it's exactly right. I mean, he decided that the government was involved. This was an inside job. He went down a rabbit hole. She couldn't have cared less. In fact, she was, I wouldn't say hostile to this idea, but she really wanted no part of it. She didn't want to think about 9-11. She didn't want to think about 9-11 conspiracy theories. I mean, while she wanted to grieve in her own way, there was a grief counselor who told them early on, and this was a very useful metaphor for them, that here, when someone dies, you have to imagine that you are at the top of a mountain and you all have a broken leg. So you can't help each other get down the mountain. You're going to have to get down in your own way. And so this was his way. I mean, the only exception that I think one could take to that metaphor, which someone pointed out to me, is Bob Sr. doesn't even seem to want to get down the mountain, right? He wants to live in his grief. He's in this like kind of glass house of sorrow. And what's amazing to me is that Helen has accepted that and said, he doesn't want to get down. You know, he's going to stay right here with his grief. That was NPR's Rachel Martin speaking with author Jennifer Senior, a writer with The Atlantic. Her new book, On Grief, Love, Loss, and Memory, is out now. A crackdown on easy credit is making it harder for business owners, both big and small. Everybody, I think, is very gun-shy. I mean, we've got the R-word recession floating around, and, and sometimes it feels like the, the purse strings get tighter. And it's not just me. Other small businesses are struggling with the same thing. And if they can't tap into credit, it could spell bigger problems for the economy. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, we hear from business owners and economists about the credit crunch and what it means for all of us. You can listen to that story tomorrow on the radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Tiny Beautiful Things is a brand new series on Hulu based on Cheryl Strayed's best-selling book of the same name. It follows Claire, both the woman she is today and the teenager she was. The show stars Katherine Hahn as an adult Claire and Sarah Pigeon as a young Claire, and Merritt Weaver plays Claire's mother, Frankie. And although the series is generally fictional, it does closely mirror Strayed's own life and experiences, many of which were captured in the advice columns that Cheryl Strayed wrote anonymously under the name Sugar. From the start, Strayed tells us she knew that Claire, a.k.a. Sugar, had to have her past. She has to have lived through many of the most formative experiences I had, namely the death of my mom. My mom died very suddenly of cancer at 45. She has to have been estranged from her father since a young age, like I was. She has to have grown up poor in a rural environment because those things not only formed me, they informed the advice I give as sugar. 
that reminded me of one of the columns you wrote where you talked about the idea of the choices that you make in life and how you're a different person because of the journey you went on. But there could be this idea of a parallel version of you who made some different choices and and how important it is to make peace with where you ended up as opposed to the alternate you. And you kept coming back to this idea of a ghost ship life in the column. Yeah. So the letter was from this man who was around the age of 40, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to be a father or not. He was agonizing over, you know, if he would make the wrong choice that he would regret it. And so he asked me to help him find some clarity on this question that really, I think so many of us ask ourselves. And what I told him essentially is, I don't know that there will be clarity. That what happens is we do our best and we, we live the life that we choose. And there will be losses and gains no matter what choice we make. And then come to peace with that idea that there's nothing we can do about that life that we didn't choose, but salute it from the shore. What was it like for you to encounter this ghost ship version of yourself in the form of a TV show? Mm, really moving. I mean, Catherine Hahn, she's such an extraordinary actress, and she captures the full range, really, of humanity. So she makes me laugh and she makes me cry. And I think, you know, I couldn't be happy if I hadn't made good on my intentions and dreams to be a writer. And in so many ways, this is why Claire is, is struggling and suffering. She doesn't know who she is because she never followed that voice within her. I think the thing that moves me the most is it isn't just about me. And I always knew that when I was watching, for example, Sarah Pigeon and Merritt Weaver perform those conversations where they're talking about the character of Frankie, who Merritt plays, dying. I know that it's not just me reliving my own life, that so many people who are watching the show are going to feel that loss in their own hearts because they've experienced it too. And I think that that's the magic of vulnerability. It's the magic, frankly, of literature and, and all art, that we tell the particular story that is ultimately universal, that we're always, when we speak in the truth, we're speaking to that collective experience. Absolutely. Looking back at the show for a moment, adult Claire becomes sugar at this point where her own life is very much a mess, I think to put it mildly. I mean, her marriage is falling apart. She's given up on being a writer, as we've been talking about. Her work life is in shambles. She's making some legally dubious decisions. <laughs> and, and then her friend Sam comes along and asks her to write this column. And, and let's listen to a bit of the scene where Claire is telling Sam why that is a terrible idea. You should be the one doing this. Doing what? Being sugar. What? No. I mean, it doesn't pay, and, and you know, there's no credit because it's anonymous. But I would be your point. And all you have to do is answer, like, one letter a week. Sam, and stop it. I am not giving anybody advice. My life is a show. We've been talking about how the big difference here is that Claire has never fully taken that step to become a writer. What was going through your head when you got the opportunity to be sugar? <laughs> Were there moments of self-doubt of who am I to give advice to other people? Of course, of course. Yeah. I'm laughing at that scene because parts of it are really exactly what I thought and felt and other parts of it are different. And so my, my friend Steve Almond, the wonderful writer Steve Almond, sent me an email one day. And, and in my life at that moment, this was early 2010, Steve said, Cheryl... I've been writing this Dear Sugar column for the rumpus and I don't want to do it anymore. And he said, Cheryl, 
I realized you're sugar. You need to write this column. I don't want to write it anymore. He said, it pays nothing. You get no credit because it's anonymous. Would you like to take it over? And I said, sure. And so I did. But as soon as I said yes, I had that same question that Claire says, ask Sam, you know, says, listen, I'm, I'm not qualified for this. My life wasn't falling apart in the ways that Claire's life is in the show, but I certainly didn't feel like I had any um, special wisdom or information to share with others. Mm -hmm. Each episode features a different one of your columns. The first episode features one of your most famous ones, and it's, of course, the name of the show, Tiny Beautiful Things. Someone had written Sugar and asked, what would you tell your 20-something self if you could talk to her now? And someday you'll look back on that one Christmas when your mother gave you a mustard yellow coat that she'd saved for months to buy. Don't hold it up and say it's longer than you like your coats to be and too puffy and possibly even too warm because your mother will be dead by spring. And that coat will be the last gift she ever gave you. And you will regret the small thing you didn't say for the rest of your life. When a gift is given, say thank you. What made you answer the question that way? Uh, I still get emotional listening to that because that that is from my life. And that is a regret that I carried around for a lot of years. You know, I I stayed up all night one night and that column just spilled forth. And I I just, I try to tell the deepest, truest stories. And I really did try to, you know, contemplate that question. What would I tell my younger self? And one of the most important things I would tell her is about gratitude and about saying thank you when a gift has been given. What do you hope viewers will take away from Claire's journey on the show? There's nothing better than both a good laugh and a good cry. And I hope that people get that from the show. I'm such a believer that art is to be enjoyed. And so I'm not so worried about saying, hey, take some big, amazing message from this. What I'm more interested in saying is I hope you enjoy it and I hope you see yourself in it. I hope you laugh and you cry and you remember that you're not alone. That was Cheryl Strayed. She is the executive producer of Tiny Beautiful Things, which is based on her best-selling book of the same name, Tiny Beautiful Things is streaming now on Hulu. Cheryl, thank you so much for your writing and for being here. Thank you so much, Scott. It was a pleasure to talk to you. 